Good evening, and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for over 10 years. I'll be introducing our guests in just a bit, and we'll be ready to answer your questions about birds this evening. So let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. So before I lead off with a recap of last month's conservation tip, I wanted to give people a heads up that our guests, were very, I'm very excited about our guest. He's going to go through a couple of uh, free apps for your for your cell phone, for your smartphone, that if you wanted to learn as we go, you, you have a few minutes to go to your app store and download Merlin and eBird. Merlin and eBird. Just go to the app store. They're free. Both of those are free from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And that's who our guest is. I'll introduce him in a bit. And when you, when you download Merlin, it's going to have some suggestions of packs, bird packs. Those are kind of like chapters in a book or different book for a different part of the world and, and you could go with what is suggested by it knowing where you're located or or you can just do us and canada like i have um, and have that pack so so do that real quick while we're while i'm talking of course you have to still pay attention to what i'm saying right <laughs> but at the same time you can download merlin and ebird and the, those will be really useful if you're not already using those. If you are new to them, this show will hopefully open your eyes to a whole big world of, of apps that will help you learn your birds. And uh, it's very rewarding. So we'll, we'll get into that in just a, a little bit. Uh, another quick shout out before we jump in is um, I wanted to remind listeners that at the latitude we're at where we air this locally in Shreveport and much of Louisiana, much of East Texas, uh, parts of Arkansas and a little bit of Mississippi. At that latitude, uh, we have ruby-throated hummingbirds that are really going to start piling up. So when we go on the air the next month, this is a monthly show, it'll be September 12th, it'll already be in full swing. So what I mean is we're going to have lots of ruby-throated hummingbirds passing through as they head south for migration. So this is the time to remember to brush off the dust off your second and third hummingbird feeder. If you're already feeding hummingbirds, you're going to get potentially inundated with lots of individuals like we do in our backyard in Nacogdoches. So we only run one feeder from when the hummingbirds arrive, ruby throats arrive around March 17th-ish until early September, then we start putting out a second and third feeder because we get so many southbounders and they're refueling. So remember to put out those feeders and remember to do it right. It's uh, four parts water, one part sugar, just table sugar, white table sugar, no other kind of sweetener. And and don't change that ratio. You, you can boil that so it mixes up and let it cool for two or three hours before you give it to the birds 
and you can make big batches like you do when you make lemonade or iced tea and keep it in the fridge and just put a little bit in your feeder every, every few days. Uh, they don't need the food coloring. Your color should come through with your feeder. If you don't have a colorful feeder, you can hang red ribbons, red bandanas, even orange or yellow, you know, uh, Christmas ornaments maybe, just something that is like a neon sign saying, hey, hummingbird, look, this color is attracting you over here, and here's why, because we're providing you with some nectar. So we love September because it's so much fun to watch and, and, and enjoy the hummingbirds as they pass through on their southbound migration. So we'll, we'll do the recap of last month's conservation tip, which was titled, Turn Me Off. And it refers to electrical devices that you're not using. You, you know, you, you're not in that other room and you've got lights and fans going and the computer's on and the TV's blaring, but you're not in there. And we're always talking about wanting technology to help conserve electricity, but we rarely ever talk about conserving, and that means just turn it off. You know, we want some device to help us, but I don't think we need a, a device to let us know that if we're not using it, just simply turn it off. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I mentioned how the electric grid can get overwhelmed. Um, we've got 337 million Americans, so it, it's gonna be all of us doing this to, to conserve energy. Um, you know, and if you look at how many Americans there are compared to, say, World War II in the early 40s, there's about 134 million people back then. We've, we've grown two and a half times in, in population in the U.S. between World War II and today. So, and, and of course, the technology has exploded. I mean, think about in the 1940s, only probably half of the American population had indoor plumbing, including toilets inside and today we've got technology that's requires electricity you know we all want to be plugged in for our devices and everything else and our ac that you know it's been just mega hot lately and we all want ac and uh but but help conserve energy um and and you know i mentioned also turning lights off at night in buildings skyscrapers and even short buildings it doesn't have to be a skyscraper it can be four stories tall, but building lights at night can be harmful because there are a lot of birds that migrate at night, and especially in when it's inclement weather, they get disoriented and the lights can attract them if it's foggy, if it's raining, um, and then when they're attracted to those lights, they can hit the windows. So turning building lights off, working with your, if you're leasing an office in a building somewhere in any town USA, Look to look at ways to conserve energy that way, not only to save money, but to keep birds from window striking and, and, and perishing. So, all right, now we're going to move on to our species profile. We profile a different species every month. This month is a bird called the Eastern Kingbird. It's a large flycatcher, often found in open areas. They're not very musical. They emit high-pitched notes, so we'll have to listen very carefully in order to hear this one.
Again, not musical, very high-pitched. That's the Eastern Kingbird. The name Kingbird comes from its feisty and bold nature as it chases away hawks and crows and much other birds that are much larger from a given area. In a sense, they prefer to be the king that rules the area, thus, thus the name Kingbird. The sexes are alike in this species. The coloring is quite simple. They're black above and white below. The tail is black, except the tip looks like it was dipped in white paint. This contrast in the tail is a really good field mark. Like most flycatchers, this species sits on a woodland edge or near water or out in the open like a fence post or power line over a field, or it has a commanding view of its surroundings. From there, its sharp eyes can scan for insects flying by that it can pursue. One colloquial name for the Eastern Kingbird is the bee martin for occasionally catching bees and wasps. Each year, this kingbird migrates long distance and it happens to be one of our farthest migrating passerines since it can reach Paraguay and northern Argentina during our winter. The Eastern Kingbird vacates the US and Canada when temperatures drop and aerial insects are in short supply. In April, this kingbird returns to the US and despite the misleading modifier Eastern in its name, this species occurs in roughly three quarters of the continent, continental US and at least half of Canada. This species is related to the scissor tail flycatcher and during fall migration, the two species often gather up in the evening in large temporary communal roosts. A roost is where birds go to sleep. In Nacogdoches where I live, a few birding buddies and I have seen hundreds of individuals of eastern kingbirds and scissor tail flycatchers gather up together in just one or two trees for the night. With a peak happening at our latitude in the first eight or ten days of September. In fact, on September 9th in 2019, a roost by a near uh, busy road on the north side of Nacogdoches hosted an estimated 800 eastern kingbirds and 180 scissor tail flycatchers that were all piling deep inside two deep inside two medium-sized oak trees for the night. I wouldn't have believed it if had I not seen 800 I wouldn't have believed 800 kingbirds had I not observed it myself. To see a photo of an eastern kingbird snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. It's a good bird, that eastern kingbird, and they're helping us a lot, like many flycatchers, by getting rid of too many insects, doing their job. Okay. Tonight's guest, I'm really excited. Uh, he's phoning in from Ithaca, New York. Um, he was on our show this exact time last year in August. Um, Cullen Hanks with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. C Cullen, are you with us? Yes, I am. Can Great. You hear me? Yeah, I hear you, I hear you just fine. Thanks for joining us, Cullen. So, you introduced yourself last year. That's been 12 months. People might not remember, or they may be a new listener. So go ahead and give us a bio sketch about yourself. Tell us briefly about Cullen Hanks. Um, sure. Um, Cullen Hanks. I'm a project leader at the, in the Macaulay Library of um, Natural Sounds in, in the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And the Macaulay Library is, 
is actually not uh, for books. It's actual for for media, uh, photos, um, sounds, and video of of birds and and wildlife around the world. Um, that is part of some of our our big citizen science projects that we use to support research and conservation um, on birds. And the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is an institution that is part of Cornell University, but it also kind of sits apart um, because we're part academic, but we're also uh, a nonprofit that, that supports projects engaging in citizen science um, to connect people with birds and support conservation. And you guys are also a membership organization. I've been a member, proud member of Cornell Lab for over two decades, maybe closer to three decades, and you know I get a slick magazine you all put out with a lot of really good uh, information, new cutting-edge stuff. So um, I wanted to sh make a shout-out to people think about joining the Cornell Lab. It's uh, certainly very worthy. So, Colin, thanks for joining us. Um, and, you know, this, this show is the second Tuesday of the month, except if people are looking at the calendar, this is the third Tuesday of the month because you and I were both separately traveling last week. You know, I was on vacation with my family, and so we postponed the show to, to the third Tuesday. So you were traveling. So tell us a little bit about what foreign country you were in. I just got back a few days ago, and, and what were your job duties while you were down there? Um, yeah, I was uh, I was down in southern Brazil at a Ornithological Congress of the Americas, and the reason why I was down there is because um, our our citizen science projects, in particular eBird, is a project that is really um, only possible through a, a partnership of partner organizations around the world. And um, this Congress was a great opportunity for us to connect with our partners in Argentina. Um, from Chile, they were there. Um, um, bird life partners like Aves Uruguay were there, um, as well as, as some of our, our partners that are coordinating eBird in Brazil. And these are the partners that are managing the data quality of these projects. They're they're working with local communities, and they're also working um, with governments and and uh, um, and other projects to use bird data to kind of inform whether it's whether to put a park or uh, um, kind of what's happening with birds. Cool. And so there's at least three languages at, at a conference like that. You know, it's hosted by a Portuguese-speaking Brazil, and a lot of those neighboring, all the neighboring countries you, you mentioned and are Spanish-speaking, and, and you're a gringo, but you're a gringo I've known for a long time, and, and you've got excellent ability to speak Spanish. But my question is... How did you all get on one language, or were there interpreters? Or tell tell us a little bit about how how you do that. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's really challenging. I think that um, it really depends on the group. Um, sometimes it would be. Um, I think that oftentimes Spanish or English predominates mm -hmm. um, in in South America, um, and in part because um, um, Portuguese speakers are, are often very quick at. At picking up Spanish, but other times it'd be Portuguese, and uh, and that's um, I I'm pretty good with Spanish, but when it gets into Portuguese, that could be yeah. much more a little bit more challenging. 
and, and the and Brazil so, the Brazilians aren't you know offended like hey you're in our country everyone should listen to us in Portuguese I mean <laughs> or I guess they they can't be like that right yeah I think that uh, um you know, I mean, I think anytime you're in a in a, a, a another country, you you want to respect the local yeah. local language and and um, kind of ask them what language they would prefer to use. Yeah, that, that's usually gets you most of the way there. And, and I'm sure you brought back a lot of good memories and you accomplished a lot. But it sounds like you you also brought back maybe a little cough or cold. What happened? Yeah, I think it was just a you know, 30 hours of traveling back, uh-huh. um, kind of succumbed to a little, a little head cold, but yeah, and, it was worth it. And you're not 25 anymore. So you're, no. you're starting to feel the effects of, of, uh, travel and, and the body's not 25 anymore. I am I'm, I'm with you. Uh, no, no complaints there. So, well, good. Well, uh, this is, uh, bird calls. You're listening to Cliff Shackleford and our guest is, Colin Hanks, and if you have questions for Colin or for me, the number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. And until we get some calls, I've got plenty of questions for you, Colin. Uh, the first one, let's talk a little bit a little bit about um, the three, what I'd call the three on- online biggies at Cornell Lab that we're going to focus on. Merlin, eBird, and All About Birds. So tell us a little bit about how each of them work and how they can help people observe birds. And, and, and then two of them you know, are, are app-based, application-based, and they're free. So the third one is just web-based, web-page-based. But tell us a little bit about Merlin, eBird, and All About Birds, please. Sure. Um, well, Merlin is a great place to start. Is uh, Merlin is our, um, our our app, our mobile app, um, which is available on Android or iOS to help you identify birds. And it's really set up to help you answer that question: is that when you see a bird, what is it? Because once you can identify it, you can learn more about it. Mm-hmm. And so um, Merlin has a as a guide, has photos and text on how to identify it. And as well as, as sounds that you can listen to. But it also has some kind of neat ways to navigate and, and tools for identification that we might go into if we have time. Um, and so that's Merlin. Um, it's, it's a tool to identify birds. eBird is a platform that, first and foremost for birders, is a tool to help you keep track of your observations. Okay. But it's a, it's a platform that, that uses all those observations, um, um, all those sightings, um, um, to create data sets to help birders, other people learn about birds, and also help uh, um, drive research and anybody who's trying to understand um, where birds are um, over the course of the year and how that's changing over time. Um, and and it's, uh, it's, it's a very big project with participation around the world. Um, and then All About Birds is it's kind of like an online field guide. Mm. Um, once you identify a bird, um, All About Birds is a, is a nice place to go. It's, it's not global. It's more focused on North America. But it's a nice place that you can go and you can learn more about that species, like what it's eating, uh, um, a range map over the course of the entire year. Um, you might um, be able to, if you have questions about where it nests or, or, or you know, uh, um, its behavior, um, 
um, it's a great place as, as the kind of next step if you're interested in a bird and want to learn more about it. Yeah, they all tie together really well. And, and you're right, All About Birds is kind of the clearinghouse for the, the more detailed information. And, and it, it's for all levels, really, you know, beginners, media you know intermediates and an expert but it's what i like it's it's also for for kids that are doing school projects and they need to find something on nature to to research and so it's i think very very valuable so uh yeah those are really important that cornell has put out really important but let's talk a little bit about with eBird, you mentioned how it's a great platform to keep track of what you're seeing. So can you explain how the lab aggregates bird data uh, to help birders and researchers that you mentioned? Sure. You know, when I, I grew up in Houston, and, and when I started birding, we would go out and, and we, would, we would go from Houston down to Galveston, and, and we would record a list of everything that we saw. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some of those lists are in, in notebooks and others on, on these cards. And, and, and it was a way of, of for me, uh, of learning more about birds and what I saw and keeping track of what I saw. Well, all of those lists just ended up in a, in a, in a desk mm. and didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Um, the whole idea behind eBird is to provide a, a better tool for birders to keep track of what they're seeing. And at the same time, make that information available for others to benefit from. And so um, eBird, the eBird app allows you to start a checklist and it records, you know, the amount of time that you're, that you're birding um, and it records how far you go. And you can just kind of record what species you're seeing and how many. And that checklist, along with the checklist of uh, um, people around the world, can then be used to map where birds are um, um, over the course of the year. And so far, um, over 900,000 people have participated in this project. Wow. Um, and they've uploaded over 1.5 billion observations of birds. A billion with a B. Yeah, billion wow. with a B. Wow. So these are true citizen scientists that are contributing to the greater good. Um, very cool. Uh, so, uh, we've got some callers. Um, let's go to Michael from Pineville. Michael, are you here? Michael from Pineville, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Go ahead. Yes. So, I recently have been using both the apps you guys are referring to, and they're, they're awesome. You know, I just uh, can't speak highly enough, but, um... I recently saw a Mississippi kite pull up and uh, a couple different red-tipped hawks. Uh, and then recently, yesterday, my wife and I observed um, one of the bald eagles in our area. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, how do these raptors kind of and these birds of prey uh, coexist in these smaller areas? And then the one... Exhibit dominance over the other. Yeah, they're 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 filling different niches. So the Mississippi kite is an insectivore primarily, not exclusively, but but they're they're aerially hunting dragonflies and cicadas and other large insects that are up in the air. You probably can't see the insect, 
because mm. you know they're the size of a french fry maybe way up in the air but you can see the bird because he's the size of a crow not as husky as a crow but he's he's a good sized bird the mississippi kite and then the other bird you mentioned the red tipped hawk that's not a species so i'm guessing you've had either red shouldered or red tailed and those tailed. two the that's what I red tailed and, and he's eating mid-sized mammals he's eating rabbits and squirrels so very different and he's using his feet uh, on catching stuff on the ground he's not catching stuff in the air like the kite so they're doing different things that is mm. different as an electrician and a plumber working on your house okay <laughs> okay and then the bald eagle he, he guess where he is he's out over water and he's predominantly eating fish not exclusively because you'll see bald eagles do weird things and go down to roadkill on the side of the road or dead deer i've seen them do that quite a few times uh, but predominantly they're after fish out over the water so they're filling different roles different niches just like the plumber the electrician the carpenter are all very different even though they're working on the same plot of land oh that's awesome yeah, yeah it's uh i actually observed the bald eagle making a a straight dive down through some binoculars um, uh, so i'm not sure oh, wow. what it was going towards but uh, it's pretty awesome so, yeah but, that's uh, great good good yeah, observation thank you so Michael. Much for the uh thanks so much for the uh information and for what you guys do like i said those apps are are just wonderful that's great thanks michael Thank you. You're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800-552-8502. We have Manly from Jenna, Louisiana. Manly, are you there? No, no Manly. We lost Manly on the on the line. Okay. Um, okay, 800-552-8502 if you have a question uh, for Cullen or for me. Um, so feel free to call. We're on till 7 o'clock. So, Colin, let's get back to my questions. So, there's the there's the five question technique of how to ID a bird in Merlin. Can you tell us about that and, and maybe use an example of how that works, and then maybe go into Merlin's photo ID and sound ID into detail and, and how each of those work. Sure. Um, yeah, and I think this is this is. Um, um, these are a couple of the tools that really make Merlin unique. Um, and, and as I said before, Merlin has, um, they have example photos. Um, each species has its own species account. Uh, example photos of the male and the female and the immature and text on, on key characteristics to look for to identify them and sounds you can listen to. But what's interesting is, is how we help you get to that bird. And one of the big challenges that I had when I started birding is, you know, I went out with an expert that was, you know, like you, Cliff, that had been, was older than me and, and mm -hmm. had more experience. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> keep going, keep going. And, uh, um, you know, we went out and, and, and they were pointing out birds, this bird and that bird. And I was like, you know, this is great. This is fun. And so I went and tried to do it on my own. And I, I took out a bird guide and, and opened it up and, and I was like, okay, I'm going to identify this bird. And there was 800 species in the, in the guide. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, where do I start? And mm -hmm. I didn't even know which group it was. And, 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 and so one of the big challenges that I think uh, new birders have is how do we narrow down the list of possibilities so that they can find potential species accounts so that they can use those photos and sounds to confirm the identification. 
And one of the ways that we've done that is with five questions. Okay. And those, uh, and those five questions um, really allow us to kind of filter out the possibilities so that instead of looking at 800 different species accounts, we can maybe look at five um, and, and start with those. And those five questions start with, where are you and when? What was your date? Because just with those two questions, we can filter out all of the species that aren't in, say, Shreveport mm-hmm. in August. Yeah. You know, uh, um, and, and that right there takes out a significant percentage of the species. And then we can ask a couple more questions. We ask, how big is the bird? And we, we do that by, by showing icons from the size of a sparrow up to the size of a goose to give you a sense of, is this a really big bird, a medium-sized bird, or a small bird? And from there, if it's a small bird, well, we can weed out all the big birds. Mm-hmm. Or if it's a big bird, we can weed out all the small birds. And so our list is getting smaller. And then we can look at what color was it? Mm. Now, this is oftentimes where people start, and it's important, but it's only one of the five questions. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a black and white bird, then we can filter out all the birds that aren't primarily black and white. And then finally, we ask kind of what was it doing? Was it in the shrubs? Was it soaring? Was it in the water? And we use that to finally filter it out. And so we may have started with 800 species in your field guide, mm-hmm. and then we can potentially get it down to the, the five most likely or, or a few most likely birds that you might be looking at. Mm-hmm. And that's only possible because we have this big database of all these citizen scientists around the world who are keeping track of their observations so that we can say what are the likely species for any location and date. Okay. So if, if you're listening and you're curious about what we're doing here, this is when you first open the Merlin app, and there are a couple choices, and it's the second one. It says step-by-step ID, and that's what Colin's talking about the, with the five-question technique. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. And, and, and Colin, you might mention that, you know, it, 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 if you put small yellow bird August, it might list a whole bunch of warblers, but at least you can, you know, maybe sift through five or eight species instead of, like you said, a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what about the location? Do, do you guys, do you get, do you get complaints from people that are a little, uh, paranoid that big brother's watching and that giving their location is a little too personal what do you do do to that well i mean i i I think that uh um you know it's it's really what works for you um um, not everybody does want to share their location or you know um maybe they don't want to share every observation and with ebird you have the ability to to not share and just record it for your own personal use but i think that um when people start using this information and exploring the the data, they really see the value of sharing this, not just for science, but also just for your community, for people, other people looking to find birds and learn about what birds they're seeing. Yeah. So if you plan on using eBird and you're wanting to play hooky from work, maybe you want to make sure your supervisor isn't a bird watcher, right? Because then he or she might look and see that, hey, you weren't really sick. You were out birding. So how about that? Make sure your boss isn't a birder. Would you say that's fair? 
Well, I, I actually recommend you just take your bus, and then ah. that usually works a little bit better. Hey, that's that's a great idea. At least that works at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. There you go. There you go. Cool. Um, okay, uh, you're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. Um, maybe one or two lines are a little messed up here at the studio, so if you get a busy signal, just uh, call back and you'll, you'll hopefully get through. We take calls till about the 50th minute of the hour and then we've got to move on. So you still got, I don't know, 20 minutes or 18 minutes. So get those questions ready for Cullen while he's on the line. Um, okay, Cullen, so let's talk about eBird and, and let's talk about how it's a tool for a beginner who wants to learn or explore the birds in their county or parish. Um, how do you do that in eBird? Tell us how some beginner can use that as a tool. Sure. Um, yeah, so, so eBird is, is this platform that allows you to keep track of your information, and we, ha we make that, that data available. And, and as we said before, well, there's over 1.5 billion observations. So that's, that's a lot of data just to download and use. And so we do a number of things to make this accessible and usable. And one of the ways we do it is we create tools for birders to explore this data. And one of the best ways is that you can go to your county or parish and see what birds are found there mm -hmm. and find out where to find them or find places to go birding. Oh, yeah. It'll give you an idea of, of where the bird watchers are going. Like you mentioned Shreveport, so it might pop up Red River National Wildlife Refuge or Dixon Park. Those are both heavily birded. Um, so if you if you narrow your parish or county down to a location like a refuge, what can you do then? Well, actually where I would start is um, if you go to the eBird website, you can go to Explore. Mm -hmm. And under Explore, you can explore for a species or for a location. And so if you type in Caddo, um, it'll pull up, uh, um, or whatever county or parish you're in, um, it'll, um, you'll pull up your county. And one of my favorite tools is the illustrated checklist. Mm. And the cool thing about the illustrated checklist is it tells you how frequently people are seeing a species for each week of the year. Mm. So for example, if you live um, in, in Caddo Parish and you want to know when snow goose is going to uh, um, come back well you can you can ask Cliff and he can tell you but if Cliff isn't there you can check the illustrated checklist and see that people really start seeing them in October mm -hmm. and and there are a few uh, um, observations or a few people seeing them in September great so it, it, it's it's really really helpful to answer those kinds of questions like you said you, you might be missing a painted bunning and it's December and you get on eBird and you can start looking around to say see when they start showing up and then you can be ready to look for them or, or maybe you've never seen a summer tanager and you'd like to see one it, it can help you uh, locate one just by a nearby spot and uh, when people are seeing it if you're if you're looking for a summer tanager and February, good luck. 
Um, but it might tell you to, hey, think about it. Think about coming to this site in April, May, or June, and, and you can find it. So it's a, a really good tool to play with uh, to help you uh, experience more birds or, as, as birders like to say, to, to beef up your checklist or your life list. And those are, those are you know, we, we bird watchers collect sightings like a baseball card collector collects baseball cards. We want to have one of everything. And, and with birds, we, we want to see one of everything. So uh, that's something to give it a little bit of, of flavor, a little spice to, to bird watching is to, to get out there and try to find new species that are new to you that you've never seen, like, like we mentioned, uh, painted bunning or summer tanager. So, um, so that you're listening to Bird Calls. It's, the number here is 800-552-8502 if you have any questions especially questions about Merlin app or eBird. Um, at, at any level you're at, uh, we've got Cullen here for a few more minutes, and he is one of the experts. There are many experts up there at the Cornell Lab, but the, the good thing is Cullen and I are longtime buddies, and that's why he got stuck doing this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Cullen, in, in Merlin's sound ID, the, how does the setting for my location help the app make the ID? You, you kind of covered that already but let's 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 do it again on how important my location is yeah um well merlin is a is a global app and and so we cover uh, um we have species accounts in merlin for over ten thousand species um and you know we've developed photo id and sound id which uses all these sound recordings and photos that people have uploaded um people have uploaded um over 50 million photos to the Macaulay Library through wow. eBird, and almost 2 million audio recordings. And one of the things that we can do, because we have so many sound recordings and photos, is, is train Merlin to automatically identify birds and photos and sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but sounds is still pretty challenging. Um, there's a lot of birds that sound like other birds. Mm-hmm. Um, some birds imitate other birds. Um, you think about the northern mockingbird that can be you know that can be really challenging and so what we do is we we've trained merlin to identify birds in sound recordings but we've improved the results by by using a filter for what are the likely species in a location and so the way sound id works is that if you hear a bird you can turn it on and um open your merlin app um and uh hit sound ID, and then um, it'll start recording. And um, as it's listening, it's it's getting detections of, I think I hear a painted bunning, or mm-hmm. I think I hear an eastern kingbird. But then it's also running it by and saying, are these, are these species that are likely for this location? And that's because we have all this eBird data, and we know whether painted bunning or eastern kingbird is actually found in your area during this time of year. That's awesome. So, do the recordings go anywhere? The the ones you make on your smartphone using the Merlin Sound ID, do they get kicked back to Cornell for any reason, or do they just stay on your phone? Well, you can share those sound recordings, and one thing you can do that um, they will come to the lab if you add them to your eBird checklist. Okay. However, if you don't add the sound recording to the eBird checklist, then they are not uh, um, made available. Okay. But, 
but one thing that I do oftentimes is I'll not only use sound ID, I'll record a bird with sound ID, and you can also reference it. And so I might mm. share it with you and say, hey, Cliff, I heard this sound. It, it sounds kind of like a, uh, a titmouse, a tit mouse, but it, it, it sounds a little bit different mm-hmm. if you take a listen to it. Yeah. Or, and, and so it can be useful in that way, too. Yeah, what, what a great tool. And the timing couldn't be better with technology. You mentioned all the observations. You mentioned all the photos that the Macaulay Library has, all the sound recordings. I mean, these were impossible 20 years ago, uh, you know, getting closer 15 years ago. But in the, certainly in the last 10 years, it's gotten fantastic and, and only getting better. So um, I got a question. What you think there are, can you give us any hints of any upcoming apps by Cornell Lab? Is there anything in the works that, that you might give us a little teaser? That's a great question. Um, you know, I... I wouldn't say I wouldn't be thinking about new apps, but we're certainly constantly working on improving the apps uh-huh. that we have, and and um, making them more effective. Um, you know, I mean, Merlin has changed so much since it started. Um, you know, that was um, I think around 2015, and you know, the, with Photo ID and now Sound ID. Um, I think that one space that's going to be really interesting is how do we support communities to interact with each other and learn from each other? Mm-hmm. Because I think that one of the things that is so important for, for, for people is that mentorship and being able to learn from pe- um, people with more experience. Right. And, and the one thing I'm excited about is how can we support those connections? Well, when I asked that question, I was thinking, what other app could there be you know you guys have nailed it with these apps we're talking about in the website um, all about birds so if you guys need an idea i have one for you okay we it, it and i don't know if you guys have even thought about this but we need an app for for the birds of mars you know <laughs> that there there you go how about that you guys work on that would you I'll talk to the team. Okay. We'll get on that. Good. Hey, we've got a caller. We've got David from East Texas. David, are you with us? Uh, yes. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We're, we're in East Texas. Are you willing to tell us your location, just uh, general? Um, I'm just east of Jasper, a little town called Forestville. Okay. Uh, in between Jasper and the Louisiana border. Okay, great. Um. My question is, uh, during uh, the winter months, we have, like, robins in the area. Some years there are some years there's not. Uh, Are they they native birds to North America, or where do they go? Or are they from the north, or do they go south when uh, they migrate from here? And, David, you, you said the American robin, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're certainly native here, and actually, if you use data, it's the most abundant species in the continental U.S. and Canada at estimated 380 million individuals. So it's wow. it's the number one bird, and in all travels that I've done, you, you really can't go to a state and not see a robin unless it's, you know, way north and it's super cold winter, they've moved south. So, so they're very migratory, and... And, and what changes 
year to year are, are their patterns maybe based on food. And so some years we have bumper crops of junipers and black cherry and holly and all these berries, because remember that's what they're after in the winter. The ground might be too hard to find worms or the worms might be too deep for them to reach. So they're eating a lot of berries. And, and, and a group of 100 robins can strip a bush in no time, a, or a tree, a berry-giving tree. So they've got, to be comp they've got to be on the move. So, yeah, it, yeah and I've noticed that too. I've, I've noticed some parts of the state I can be in, and there's just a kajillion of them. And the next year, they're, they're just not in the big numbers. So they're, they're, I call them semi-nomadic. They're wanderers. Exactly. They're, they're looking for these, these berry-giving trees to, to basically ambush and strip and clear, and then they're on their way. Yeah, I just noticed they're just here for a few months during the winter months here, and then they're they're up and gone. Yeah, and and, uh, and the thing with berries is once they're stripped, that's it for the year. Um, just like when you're picking stuff in your vegetable garden, once you've picked right. that last green bean or that last tomato, it, it's it for a long time for them to reproduce uh, fruit. So uh, same thing with the robin that once they've stripped that tree in your yard or your neighborhood, they're gone, and they've got to keep moving, and it's all about food, uh, food right. availability, because birds aren't looking for handouts, especially the robin. That's not one that you get at a feeder very often. Um, they don't like seeds, so we can't provide for them. Um, I, I know some people put out uh, little diced apples and raisins and stuff for robins um, and other fruit-eating birds, but that, that's pretty hit or miss. Um, so, so really, the best thing you can do for robin is to plant a native berry-giving tree. So, native to your area, if you, you know, n native means to where you're standing. And so, if you've found a tree that you really like, but it's 16 states to the east of you, it's not going to work probably in your area. You got to find out what works in your area and what gives fruit. Um, but that's something each of us can do. Um, is provide a berry-giving native species for our robins and our cedar waxwings. Uh, Cullen, are you you want to add anything to David's question about robins? Yeah, I think one thing that's kind of interesting is that their behavior changes over the course of the year. Um, during the breeding season, they might they're going to spread out and be more territorial. And in areas where they're breeding, you're going to be more likely to see them consistently. Consistency. Uh, um, they're going to be more consistent. Whereas during the winter, they tend to form more flocks and they can move around and they're less tied down, so to speak. And so that's why oftentimes you won't see any and other times you will because they're, like like Cliff said, they're following the food. Yeah. Right. Right. Matt, and uh, I notice I just only see them a few months a year, mainly when it's cool down here. And another thing, the, the whippoorwill, uh, it's just down here for a few months a year. You hear it and then... All of a sudden, it's uh, getting spring and summer, or I mean, uh, winter, and you don't hear them yeah. in the winter. Yeah, and, and all of our what we call capramulgids or goat suckers, which are the whippoorwills and the chuckwills, widows, and the nighthawks, et cetera, they're, they're after insects. They're flying around at night. And so when the ambient temperature gets t to, you know, 50 or below 50 degrees, that, that shuts down insects, and that, that means the food source is gone. So... Those birds are highly migratory, so that's why we only have them in a certain time of the year, uh, David. And, and so we have to enjoy them when they're here, and, and it makes it fun to 
notice when they come back and it's like an old friend returning yep. returning yep. to to visit you so all right david well thank thank you for the call thank you all yep. thank you very much thank you we've got john from nacogdoches john are you there yeah i'm here hello okay. go ahead we can hear you well i've got every time you mention something it pops another question in my head I did not realize that that you could communicate with others through the Merlin app, and I. Um, so that I'm curious about that. Is there a share feature on that? I just. Uh, how does that work, Colin? Go ahead. Yeah. No. What I was saying is that um, if you hear a bird with sound ID, if you hear a bird, and you start and you make a recording, Merlin is going to suggest some species. However, if it's an interesting sound one of the things that you can do is share that recording. And so oftentimes, and, you know, I was just down in Brazil, there were some times, there were some species I was completely not familiar with. If I wasn't sure, I would just get a recording, and then I could go back to it and compare the, compare to the sounds in the different species accounts. Or I could uh, um, um, share it with a friend and say, hey, check out this sound. You know, is this, this is kind of like this species, but I'm not sure. And so um, um, I use it that way. But I think that that's an interesting question is that, like, um, is there more ways that we can connect people to share knowledge, especially with your friends and your mentors? But, but Colin, you're, the sharing you mentioned this was through actually through eBird. You're, you're saving your recording in Merlin but linking it to your eBird and sharing it that way, right? No, I was actually talking about the sound recording in Merlin. Okay. Merlin. Um, there's an arrow, and I can't open it right now because I'm on my phone, so I ah. can't actually um, use the sound, that, that part of the Merlin app. But there's, there's a kind of a share button um, that allows you to send it like you could send any other kind of file on, on your phone, and that will be a little bit different from iOS to Android. Mm-hmm. But my point was is that Sound ID is a very cool tool. Not only does it help you identify birds, but it, it's a way you can record that um, bird and share that sound with somebody else who might be familiar with that bird or um, upload it to your eBird checklist. So, that, so that's what I'm looking at. I'm, I'm looking at my sound recordings, and I don't see anywhere to share. And, and like Colin said, he can't look at it. Let's see if I well, can I, do I'm, it here. I'm looking at mine, but it's not... Um, I mean, that's you, what, if, are you, if you're on iOS, what it's going to be is a box with an arrow that points straight up. Um, and so you click on a, a sound recording, you see a box with an arrow that goes straight up. That's on, on an iPhone. And then it's just going to uh, um, give you the option to share that sound recording. You can save it as a file, or you could actually send it to somebody. So I have to click on the recording. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, I see the share. Okay, I'm seeing it now. All right. Okay, very good. I, that's probably been there forever, and I didn't realize it. Okay, so that's pretty neat. So I can, but I have to know who to send it to. Basically, I'm just going to send it through like what text messaging or whatever, right? Just standard mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. All right. So my next question that I've been dealing with for for weeks now, ever since we've had triple digits, is heat stress. Mm-hmm. And this drought that we're in now, and how that's how to deal with 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 the birds that are here. I'd I'd stop I'd stop putting seed in my feeder. We've always had a a black a sunflower seed in a in a very large feeder, and I stopped doing it when we had that when the bird 
flu was sleeping through last winter or fall or whatever it was. And, and I just emptied it and cleaned it out and, and haven't recharged it until now. I don't know if putting out that black sunflower seed is helpful for the birds with this type of heat or if it's just irrelevant. Yeah, the, the the seed is really helpful in the colder months for us. There's so many insects and seeds available that Mother Nature's providing. The best thing you can do in the drought is a bird bath, and, and yeah. that takes some commitment. So don't just put water out and forget about it. Um, you need to clean it. Um, you know, you can use just a high-powered nozzle to clean it, or if it's really nasty, you can uh, use a 10% bleach and then wait a, a while to be, you know, put it in the sun before you fill it with water. Um, but you know, right now the birds are either drinking it, bathing it, or it's drying up so quick that you don't have to worry about all that. But providing water is really key right now um, because all the puddles are dry, the creeks are drying, and boy, if you know, John, it says you're from Nacogdoches where I am. It, the rain is not falling from the sky right now so that's a good call uh what you're asking about and uh so bird bath is a great way to to help the birds out colin how about you you got any other suggestions no that's exactly what i would say great so there's your homework well, assignment john and it's pr pretty straightforward it doesn't have to be you know a lot of people want to get something really pretty from the store that's ornamental and birds don't care what it looks like it doesn't need to be jazzy um, I mean, it can yeah. be just a, an old um, uh, pan from from cooking um, as you put out there and, and put water in it. And just the key the key is not only cleaning it, but make sure you don't have a lot of hiding places for predators like neighbor cats uh, really close to the water. Make sure it, it's make sure it's in some shade from above that can keep the water cool and keep it from drying out fast. But don't put it right in the shrubbery where a cat can pounce on the birdbath because a cat would just love you to put a birdbath up near the bushes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have one more related question. Okay. Um, and, and, well, actually, there's lots of related questions, but, but this in particular with the hummers. Um, you said they're going to be coming through in waves. Um, I, I just – okay, so it's – this has never happened here. It's 105 degrees on the on my back deck in the shade. So that means that the water, the Hummer feed that I put out is going to be pretty warm. Uh, they are feeding at it. They're not feeding near like they were a few weeks ago. It seems like all the birds have gone through a, a, a birthing cycle. I don't know anyway, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but uh, how long can I, I mean, I guess, I guess they're feeding from flowers in the same heat. Yeah, um, and, the, and the nectar and the flower is warm too. It's getting sun, yeah. so it's it's not a it's not a heat thing bothering the birds. They don't need chilled iced tea like we do. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. I just 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 wanted to make sure. And as yeah. far as changing it, I have a very large. I have two very large feeders. They feed like eight birds at a time. Uh huh. And I've had them for a long time. They will the mold will eventually start growing in them. So I have to completely change them out. And what are we looking at, like three or four days? Yeah, yeah. Temperature? three or four okay. days. So if that means you're dumping a lot of unused uh, nectar that you brewed, don't fill it up next time all the way. Don't Just fill it up what you think will last three or four days. And right okay. now with the trickle of hummingbirds, you don't need to fill your feeder. 
but you might need to um, September 20th, for example. So, all right. Well, thanks. Thank. Well, I'm sorry. Go oh, go, real quick, John, because we're about to run out of time. Real quick. No, I'll let you go. Okay. I, I really appreciate you taking the call. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. Cullen, we've got to call it quits. I want to thank you so much for being on the air with us. And uh, we'll have you again some other time. How about that, Cullen? That sounds great. Okay. Thanks. And uh, it's, uh, it's been great chatting with great, you. Great. Thanks. And, and hope you get over your uh, Brazilian cough, okay? Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. Now it's time for a conservation tip. This one is on community-supported agriculture. Do you ever wonder how long ago those grocery store fruits and vegetables were harvested? You would definitely know if you joined a nearby farm called a CSA or Community Supported Agriculture. CSAs are usually organic, so no herbicides, pesticides, or artificial fertilizers are used, and all of which are good for our birds and other wildlife. A CSA gives consumers the chance to see how their food is grown, including in healthy soil, which yields healthy food. At a CSA, the farmer tends to the land while consumers share the costs of supporting the farm and share the risk of variable harvests. This also can mean sharing in the overabundance of a particularly fruitful year. Members usually pay monthly and pick up their food each week, sharing in the bounty. Their shares help the farmer offset costs of producing this healthy food. Every farm is different in length of season, crops grown, level of member activities, and price they set for their shares. CSA is not about cheap food. Cheap food is usually not nourishing nor grown with care and the environment in mind. Consider joining a nearby CSA. We've been members of ours near Nacogdoches for over 10 years. If one doesn't exist in your area, work with others in order to start one. Eating healthy and taking care of the land is a win-win. Do it for your health and do it for the birds. That concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackelford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, and our telephone guest, Colin Hanks, with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca, New York. Thanks for joining us, Colin. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation in North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of an eastern kingbird was recorded by Michael Lester and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the kingbird on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 12th. And remember, do it for the birds.